Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. This is episode 49 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. And in my adventures listening to a lot of other podcasts about speaking and the like, this name comes up heaps regularly, and it's always a great listen. Actually, whenever I think about today's guest, the first word that comes to mind for me is fun. There's always a lot of laughter going on in the episode. There's always a lot of great value as well. Uh, and yeah, just fun. That's very close to the word that I think of, which is energy. I oh, don't know yeah. if I know anyone on podcasts <laughs> who has as much energy as Neen James, and she is our guest today. Yeah, having said that, she very clearly deeply knows the topics that she talks about and oh, yeah. is a guest on, which is which is also what uh, we spoke to her about. So things like the topics of attention, conceptual models, and even processes. Mm. So what I loved about this conversation, talking with Neen, was like chatting to a friend. She was yeah. so easy to speak to, and we found ourselves really thinking hard. She really challenges a lot of your thinking. Yeah, so if you heard in a previous episode where Kate looked like she was really annoyed while recording with a guest, this was it, because yeah. we, were both, we were both concentrating so hard. And I remember looking across at Kate and just thinking, are you okay? But it and was I just was. deep concentration first. Oh, I was thinking so hard, I need to work on my thinking face, because <laughs> it looks like I'm really annoyed. <laughs> yeah, but we're both totally in that moment. Yeah. Neen is also a fellow Australian, you'll hear that in her voice, but... This was another fun one where we had a huge time difference because she currently lives in Florida. Yeah, so she just got back from her morning run at 7am and we were sitting there at 10pm at night. Yeah. All right, why don't we get into the show, our guest interview with Neen James. All right. Neen is the author of Folding Time and Attention Pays. She's been named one of the top 30 leadership speakers by Global Guru several years in a row because of her work with companies including Viacom, Comcast and Abbott Pharmaceuticals, among others. Neen's quick-witted, boundless energy offers powerful strategies to pay attention to what matters so you can get more done and create more significant moments at work and home. Neen engages, educates, entertains, and delivers real-world solutions that apply in your organization, home, and community. She also provides one-on-one consulting in a variety of leadership topics. Neen James, thank you so much for coming and joining us and welcome to the Presentation Boss podcast. Are you kidding me? What a treat to get to hang out with some Aussies. It's early my time at the time of recording, but I, I love me an Aussie accent. I miss it. Oh, that's so nice. I'll have to chuck in my usual g'day then. Yeah. Oh yeah, then I know it sounds crazy to say g'day, but I do it at the start of every presentation and audiences in the US love it. And Australians probably just roll their eyes like, really? Is she teaching them how to say g'day? Is that really happening? Yes, yes indeed it is. <laughs> All right, well, that actually kind of leads us into my first question, which is, um, Neen, tell us what's between the lines of your bio. Tell us about you. I am uh, a little girl. I know I sound like five if you're listening. There's nothing wrong with your audio. That is absolutely my real voice. <laughs> if you add a zero, you're getting a lot closer to my age. Um, so I grew up as this little girl in this tiny little town in Australia. And I guess I was always a performer. Like I was the kid who would put on shows and make my poor mom watch them, you know, with the neighborhoods. And you would like sing into a hairbrush like ABBA. <laughs> I thought I was like so cool. And we played dress ups. And then at church, I would sing in Sunday school. And I think, and then when I look at my corporate life, I was always the girl who jumped up to do a presentation or volunteered to lead a project. Or, you know, when I was in the latter part of my corporate career, I was the girl who was always tapped to give the board the update. So what I didn't realize was there's this common theme in my life, which was all about having this confidence to stand and deliver. And I've always, always been a performer. I just didn't realize it at the time. And then someone said to me when I was in my corporate life, you know, you should be a speaker. And I was like, huh, can you make any money doing that? Well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you it's actually a thing. Like not only is it a real job, there's a whole industry about it. They even have their own conference. I mean, can you imagine attending a conference of just speakers? It's crazy. But I got involved in the National Speakers Association of Australia, because as you all know, I hail from Sydney, Australia. And so, uh, yeah, and it's 
like the coolest career ever, but I was a corporate girl. So what you can't see in my bio is I was also a corporate girl in some very male oriented industries. It was not mm-hmm. uncommon for me to be the only chick at the table. It was not uncommon for me when I was in the oil industry. If someone would say, Oh love, can you go get the coffee? Like I can. And if you were to sit down, I'm about to start the meeting. My name's Neen James and you need to take notice. And so it was really fascinating. And I'm, oh, by the way, not only do I sound like I'm five, I'm four, ten and a half. So I'm not this huge person. (laughs) So it was really fascinating to me. And I didn't, it wasn't something that was deliberate that I chose very male oriented industries. And look, I'm an old lady now. So very, very different times than what it is now. But I learned how to confidently stand up for myself. I learned how to own a room. I learned how to get people's attention using certain methodologies. And that has served me and ended up being something that I could commercialize in my speaking career. One day we're going to meet Neen, because I you always say you're four foot ten and a half. And a half. This is important. You need to understand why this is important. Okay. And so I'm often in stilettos, so I like pretend that I'm five feet. Just, you know, have you ever seen those signs like um, you have to be this tall to ride this at a theme park? Soul Cycle in America even has those same signs like you have to be 4'11. So I like just sneak in, like don't look at anybody. It's very important to add that half. I'm telling you, Thomas, (laughs) it's a thing. Because one day we're going to meet and it's going to be, it's going to be good fun because I'm six foot six. So the difference will be... Oh my God, I love this. I love this. Um, there's this phenomenal speaker in, Austria, in, uh, in the US who was a very famous basketball player called Mark Eaton. And he's a friend of mine. Yep. And he's like, like crazy tall. Like, I don't even know. Like, I want to say like there's probably a seven in front of it. Um, Ooh, and yeah. like, I come up to like his belly button. Do you know who Magic Johnson is? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. 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 So I did a job with magic and it was the funniest, funniest thing. And then at one stage in the show, I put his shoes on and was like walking around the stage. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was highly inappropriate and hilarious, but he was like so cool. So it's one of my fun photos that I have of people like Mark and magic. So yeah, Thomas, I think you and I could take a really good photo. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. When we do our, um, our, business branding photos I literally am on a stepladder I mean I'm not a short person I'm certainly not tall but I'm literally (laughs) on a stepladder so we can actually have a photo with both of our heads in it (laughs) but I think too as a presenter especially if you're in a corporate role you have to be able to call out these type of things about you that are different right because people are going oh my god she's so little or she sounds like she's five or oh my god she's so tall or and that's that's great. These are uniquenesses about us. And so for me, I call them out in the first two minutes of my speech. Like every mm. single time I'm on a stage, doesn't matter if there's a hundred people in a ballroom or 5,000 people in a ballroom or 10 people around a board table, I will still always call out my voice because I know it's distracting them. And I will often joke about my height. And you had the famous Drew Tarvin on here as one of your guests, one of yeah. my favorite humans. The guy's a genius. And this is an engineer, nerdy, amazing human who is hysterically funny. And he has worked out how to use all these uniquenesses about him. He turns it into humor. He's genius. So if yeah. people haven't listened to that episode, they definitely want to go back. <laughs> For sure. It's a, yeah. yeah, we love that episode. On that line, if you don't necessarily look like someone who is stereotypically in authority, how do you... <laughs> Understatement much. Yeah. So if you're in a role that has authority, how do you actually go about setting and maintaining the authority in the room? So I've always believed that when I walk into a room, everyone wants to play with me. And I have done this my whole career. I just assume I belong. I assume I'm the right person to do the presentation. I assume I am the person who needs to be in charge. And that assumption has led to incredible confidence, not cockiness. I think there's a difference. But I've always, always done this. And by the way, I test this theory all the time. I always believe that I belong. So when they call a plane, I'm like, first class, yeah, that'll be me. Like on a walk or at a concert, I will just go backstage to see if I can get away with it. At a hotel, I'll walk through the kitchen just to see if I can. Okay, to all my hospitality clients listening to this, I'm very sorry. But one of the things that I'm testing this all the time because the worst thing that can happen is they say, no, we haven't called like coach class, yes, Neen James to get to the back of the plane or whatever. 
which is not true because I try to fly first class like whenever humanly possible. But one of the things to think about is that you have to walk into a room like you belong. And I've always had that ability to do that. I always extend first. So I'm always the first person to shake hands. I'm always the person to make people feel like they're always welcome. I remember testing this theory to the point where I was shadowing one of my clients at a very major pharmaceutical company in America that's located in the Midwest. And I thought I would test this so-called theory of mine that you can walk into any room and assume you belong. So the CEO was having their leadership team. So in I walked into this lush boardroom, into this amazing, the thickest carpet I've ever seen in my entire life. The carpet was off the charts. And I sat at the table. You know, not one person asked me who I was. Nobody asked me why I was there. And it was fascinating as an experiment. Now I had, a, I was okay to be there eventually because my client sort of kind of made it happen. But I, I feel like regardless of your height or lack of height, regardless of how you sound, regardless of how you look, you have the ability and it's internal. It's an internal confidence that says, I belong here and I see you and I hear you and I want to listen to you and I want you to feel important. And I think if you can make other people feel seen and heard, then you can, you can own any room. Mm. Yeah. So what's your thoughts then on the phrase, fake it till you make it? Okay. So then if you, if you don't feel like you belong, you just suck it up, buttercup. I mean, I think that sometimes you got to like psych yourself up a little bit, but I don't believe Mm -hmm. in faking it. I think maybe my version of fake is really extreme. You know, those people who post all over social media that their life is perfect like everything is photoshopped and you know oh yeah i just rolled out of bed looking like this amazing Mm -hmm. hair and makeup's already done no not cool so fake that stuff makes me crazy right and by the way i like have a a professional photographer who takes some of my instagram photos so like let's also be real about this but i also post some very ugly sweaty stories on instagram stories i think that we have to have this balance of also being curious like if you're curious if you walk into a room and you're more interested in other people than making them interested in you, I think that that also allows you not to appear fake because if you're genuinely curious about other people, if you're paying attention to what they're telling you, if you're listening into their stories and you have the ability to show up as the best version of you, that's not fake. Mm. It's when people think they have to be a certain thing or say a certain thing. Now, full transparency in my corporate career, I am pretty sure I was faking a lot of the time because I was often the least educated, the youngest, the female, the shortest. Like I was clueless in some of my corporate career. I would walk into these meetings where the average tenure was like 24.6 years and I was like 20 years old. Do you, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And I was leading these teams. So I think I was very clueless in a lot of my corporate career. And to some days I still feel the same, but I don't believe in going in fake, but I do believe if you can get really comfortable with being curious and, and making it about the other people, then you don't need to fake anything. You walk in authentically, you genuinely interested in people and not having to prove anything. I think the reason that we get nervous, if there's any, any of your listeners who get nervous before they present, I think that, the reason that we get nervous, I heard this great phrase and I wish I knew the source of it, but someone said, you can't be nervous when you stand in service. And yeah. Yeah. one thing that I learned many years ago from a dear friend who was my original mentor and also uh, became a business partner of mine is a legend in Australia called Matt Church. And Matt yeah. Church yeah. taught me that when it comes to nervous tension, if you want to overcome getting nervous when you walk into a room or you're presenting, you have to change your center of thought. He used to tell me that if you're thinking about yourself, then of course you're going to get nervous because your center of thought is you. Or if you worry about the audience, of course you're going to get nervous because your center of, of thought is all about them. And he explained to me that it really wasn't so much a presentation as a conversation. And so what I look to do yep. is to walk into every room, assume I belong, I assume everyone wants to play with me and I just make it a conversation. It doesn't matter if it happens to be 
5,000 people in a ballroom, still a conversation, or it could be five people around a coffee table. So anyone listening, it doesn't matter about the size. And yeah, there's differences with scalability. And of course, some audiences make you feel a little bit more anxious, but I still don't believe in fake it till you make it because you're going to make it and you are making it. It's just, we have different versions of what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, right. So we've been, we've been following your work for some time and have some idea sort of what it is that you do and what you talk about, uh, given the opportunity. Uh, can you tell us and, and the listeners what it is that you do now? What's your work now? How do you help and how? Predominantly, my work is for corporations and associations. I love working with individual producers within an organization. And so that could be someone who is in a direct sales role. It could be someone who is the head of a media company. So I love working with sales and leadership audiences. They're really one of my most favorites. And then predominantly, my work is around this area of attention. See, Mm -hmm. early in my career, I was the girl who could get things done. I was the girl who could take a project that was behind and turn it around. I was the girl who was always on her feet producing. And what I realized in my corporate career in Australia was the people who got promoted were productive. So I absolutely made it a mission that I would learn to systemize everything. And because what I've realized is systems direct your attention. Mm -hmm. So Mm. therefore we have to create systems of attention. And so my work in the area of productivity evolved because I realized, my goodness, you can't manage time, but you can manage your attention. And that's what led me down that path. So all my body of work now is around this whole idea of attention and not just attention, but intentional attention, because I believe it's intention that makes attention valuable. And so helping organizations understand the different ways we pay attention by creating systems of attention is how we make a greater impact in the world. So that's my body of work. Oh, I love that. We are definitely all about systems. So that just speaks to me and I need to be super productive. So both of those, I just absolutely love that. I think with listeners, say for example, you're in a technical role or maybe you have a very analytical role and some of you are thinking, well, what on earth is she talking about with systems? We have systems every day. We have the same system for driving our car home from work. Sometimes I wonder if anyone's listening and they get to the front door and they're like, oh man, I don't even remember the drive home. Why? Because you have created a system, right? Highway hypnosis. Yes, yes, yes. We have a system for taking a shower every day. Chances are, as you're listening to this, you have a, you do the same thing most days in the shower. I don't need to know what you do. It's just a thing, right? <laughs> so we have systems, but the more systems that we create, see, I think systems create freedom. And Kate, to your point, if you can, if you can really free up the valuable real estate that is in that beautiful brain of yours by having systems in place, it just makes it easier. And so one thing I teach a lot of my corporate clients and associations and some entrepreneurial audiences as well is creating systems, not just get attention, but keep attention. Because as I said, systems create freedom. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. So I guess, uh, let's talk about attention as far as it goes with with speaking, with giving a presentation. We know attention is a commodity and it's something that we'd like from our audience because when we have attention, that's the only way we can have any sort of hope of embedding a learning in them or or, um, speaking to them, right? So how is it in a presentation we would go about initially earning that attention from our audience? You need to have something worth listening to. I mean, I think what's ridiculous is, and look, I've seen it time and time again in my corporate clients. Someone is asked to give a presentation. So they open up their PowerPoint, they vomit everything (laughs) they know into a PowerPoint deck and they have 56,000 slides. And then they stupidly say, oh, I know you can't read this, but, right? It's so crazy. And especially technical audiences, my accountants do this, you know? And so here's the thing. You have to have something worth listening to and you have, if you've been invited to present, you have a right to be there. If someone has tapped you and said, we want you to present on this topic, it's because they believe you are qualified to do it. So Mm. you have to take this assumption of being qualified to do it and prove to that person they were right in choosing you and prove to that audience that you're worth listening to. This doesn't mean showing off. It doesn't mean having ridiculous too many slides but it does mean making it about them. I always think to myself that in every room, there's four kinds of people. 
Every room has people who are very global in their thought process. They're very big picture oriented. And the people who are very big picture oriented, they love a great model or they love a great metaphor. People want to know, like, what's it like? And so for my strategic people in the room, they love a model. A model could be something like a, a pie chart or a bar chart or some kind of contextual model. The left brain people love that. But the right brain people, they love a good metaphor. What is the point of your presentation? What is it like? So they're my global thinkers. They're two mm. kinds of people. But then in every room, there's also very local thinkers, people who love the detail. And these people love evidence. They want a process. They want statistics. They want a rhetorical question. Mm. Or maybe they want a great story. So my left brain people who are very local, they love to have some kind of process, right? So these are often my engineers or they want some sort of evidence to support your so-called premise. And then the people who love a story, um, an analogy, a poem, personal observations, tying in the current events, these are my right brain people who are very local. So when you imagine that in every audience you have people who come across this spectrum, you as a presenter have a responsibility to appeal to all of them to not only earn their attention but keep their attention. Mm. Let's add another layer. You've also got to be aware that in every room these days, you have all kinds of generations in the room and different yeah. generations pay attention to you. The older generation are looking at you. It doesn't mean they're listening, but they're going to give you their attention because it's respectful, right? Yeah. The baby boomers are like looking around the room going, well, what's everyone else think about this? And so they're just paying attention to how everyone else is responding and they're mm. really in it for the team and the development. Generation X is like, please get on with it. Just get to the point so I can go and do something else. And then, and they're very happy with sound bites. But then Generation Y, one of my most favorites, they're often involved in like, they're looking for sound bites. These are the people who want to be able to talk a little bit more about what it is that you have to say and understand how it applies to them and how it applies to the world. And so when I think about the fact that we have not only four kinds of people, global and local, left and right brain, we also have different generations. Now in Australia, if you're listening to this, we have this melting pot of a nation. We're so fortunate mm. that we don't even have an identity. We're just like this beautiful mix of like everything, <laughs> right? And so I then make an assumption too that it's not just the generation you're from, it's what culture you represent. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have a responsibility as presenters to be able to appeal to multiple cultures. And we have to think about what are the stories we're telling? What are the statistics we're using? What are the examples that we're using? And are they culturally appropriate? And not just at this point in our culture, at this point in time, but to all the different kinds of people in the room. As presenters, I believe that we have a responsibility at multiple levels to engage people. If you want to earn people's attention, you better be prepared. You better have something amazing to say, and you better deliver it in a way that is engaging through use of stories, statistics, models, and metaphors. To appeal to all of the different types of people that you've got. Yeah. Right. Because mm. you had the four people and then the four, and I was like, oh, now we've got 16. And then you added another layer yeah. into that, and I was like, oh. I'm oh, honey, like I can <laughs> add, literally I can add layers. We have to think about things like, even if you're thinking about a regional presentation, in Australia, we have nuances from one state to the next. In America, yeah. we have very extreme nuances from one state to the next. Yep. And so when you think about uh, where people are from, not just like what country maybe they've originated from, but what state they're in. Yeah. And so we have to think about the customization of, like I always say to my American friends when they go down to Australia, don't you be expecting a standing ovation? Because yeah. in America, people are very generous. They give you a standing ovation as a way to say, hey, we loved what you did, you know, great job. In Australia, we will clap for you and say great job because you're there to do your job. So we make an assumption you did your job, we clap for you, all is good in the world. And I feel like different cultures have ways of showing attention to their presenter. And when I would speak in Asia, sometimes there were some people in Asia where I thought they were asleep, like napping. But one of their signs of respect is their eyes are closed, they're processing. And so if you look out into a room, oh, people wow. that their eyes are closed, you're like, okay, so now what, right? But it was just, it was oh, respectful. Yeah. So that was threatening. Right, but think about our Australian culture. Some of some parts of Australia, it is more respectful to look down rather than look someone directly in the eye. Yeah. Um, so I want you just to consider that all of these things, we have these fake thoughts around what attention is. We think if everyone's looking at us and nodding that they're paying mm. attention. 
no, they might be planning their shopping list. We don't know. And then people get offended if people are on their phone. No, maybe that's their way of taking notes. Maybe they're tweeting about your presentation. So I think we all have to get over ourselves and mm. stop like judging an audience and thinking they're not paying attention. We have to be engaging. We have to make it about them. I believe we have to make it interactive no matter what your topic so that they mm -hmm. know how it applies to them. And at the end of the day, what's in it for them? If you can't declare what's in it for them and why they should listen and why you're worth listening to, then you got to do that in the first few moments. Cause if you don't, you don't have their attention. They're going to go check their email. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if you ever had any issues because you're an Aussie girl who's now speaking in the U S whether you had any um, issues then even in being like a standard English speaking country, but it sounds like there's so many layers, no matter where you go, <laughs> it depends on what you call an issue. I'm going to call it an asset. Being Australian is an asset as I speak around the US and Canada and, yep. you know, parts of Europe. Uh, because I do sound different. Not just because I'm like sounding like a child or a cartoon character, but because I, and the way that I pronounce words, I realized is very different. Yeah, you're yeah. I, yeah, not only pronunciation, but I didn't realize we have some of the most ridiculous phrases in our Australian language that mean yep. absolutely yep. nothing to an American <laughs> audience. And it's really scary. For those of you who haven't Googled some of our Australian phrases, I dare you to go Google what these things mean. Yep. And some of them you will not say again, because I remember saying a particular phrase to someone and then they said, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, well, you know. And then I started to unpack it for them and I was like, <laughs> oh, not so cool. And so... When you think about being an Australian, it's an advantage, but I'm not even kidding you. I know exactly when I say something that makes no sense to an audience, because what will happen is, and I have been speaking here for 15 years and I still sometimes screw up my Australian words versus my American words. And sometimes it's a performance technique and I play with it, but generally speaking, here's what will happen. I'll say a phrase or a word and I will watch the whole audience like tilt their head like, huh? And I literally can see the whole ballroom go, what did she just say? And I can see them like turn to another person, give the look and I'm like, okay, wait, 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 wait. What did I say? And then we'll reverse. So I think that I have to be very conscious of my pronunciation, my uh, silly little phrases. And sometimes I will teach American audiences silly little phrases and they <laughs> love that, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I think you can take whatever is unusual about you or different or unique and you can leverage that to make your presentation even more unique. Mm. Yeah, because your differences are your assets, yeah. Yes, Kate, that's yeah. so true. All right, so I want to pivot this conversation just a little bit um, because... Um, I want to talk about contextual models. Now, this is something that we do use a little bit in our business, but I'm not sure that we've ever talked about it on this podcast. And I'm not sure, even though I understand them, I don't think that I could explain what a contextual model is. So can you start by explaining what is a contextual model? Yes, absolutely. My belief is if people can see your idea, mm -hmm. they can hear your idea. If they can hear your idea, then they can share your idea. We need to have tools to help people see your idea. Now, understand my body of work is in the area of attention. So I'm always looking for alternative yeah. ways to grab someone's attention and keep it. Yeah. And what I learned, I've referenced already in this podcast, the legendary Matt Church. So if people don't know who he is, you need to fix that. But he is, the, I think, one of the world's leading thought leaders on thought leadership. Now, I grew up under Matt Church's leadership. He was my very first mentor when I left my corporate business and one of my dearest friends. And he had this incredible ability to look at the world and be able to draw a model. So I remember seeing this showcased a bazillion years ago when I was still in my corporate life. And I thought, this is amazing. Now, what I was able to do was teach myself how to be able to contextualize every idea. And so a contextual model in its simplest form is really just square, a circle or a triangle. And so as you're visualizing this, as you're listening, whether you're running or in your car, Think about all the contextual models that are actually already in your life and you hadn't even thought about it. The old food pyramid is really just a triangle. It doesn't matter if you believe in the food pyramid or not. It still stood the test of time. Yeah. If you think of the late Stephen Covey's work where he was talking about the urgent versus the important, yeah. it's actually a square. It's just a quadrant model, squares, right? yeah. Mm. If you look at the work that you guys have debriefed Simon Sinek's talk on this podcast, yeah. Simon 
all he did was grabbed a flip chart and drew some circles on it. Yeah. Now, had he not created the golden circles, I'm not sure if his TED talk would have gone as viral because yeah. what he had the ability to do is show people what he meant about great leadership. And so square circles and triangles. So the first thing you want to think about if you're creating a contextual model is what is your ideal fear like? Is it a square, a circle, or a triangle? Now, certain shapes lend themselves to certain types of things. If you're an engineer and you're trying to demonstrate a process, process models often lend themselves to like triangles if you're trying to achieve a pinnacle or mm. ladders like a, like an oblong, which is really just a smush square, let's be honest. <laughs> and so when you think about modeling, you want your audience to see what you're trying to say. Now, whether or not you love geometry at school is irrelevant because we all know that the premise of a Venn diagram where three circles intersect, the importance is at the intersection. And yep. so yep. what I want people to consider is if you want your ideas to be shared more, if you want to appeal to that high level left brain strategic person in your audience, having a great contextual model for them will be powerful. So the first step is determine the shape of your model. What's the mm -hmm. shape that represents your idea? The second thing when you want to create a contextual model is decide what kind of words do you want in your model? Is it a process model where you're teaching someone something? Is it a conceptual model where you want a big idea to be shared? Is it an aspirational model where you're going to take people from A to B? Like there's so many different ways to look at models. And then based on what you want the point of that model to be, that determines the words you use. And then if you want to make it sexy, you add some arrows, you have a little bit of movement, maybe you animate it in your slide deck and it looks even cooler. But at the end of the day, yep. we start with a shape, we decide what the point is, we add some words and voila. There you have a contextual model. Yeah. And I've had the privilege of working with people for contextual models all over the world. And what's really fun is when you start to play with them, your audience is like, oh, I get it, I get it. And you yeah. watch, you literally watch people get it. It's the coolest yeah. thing ever. Yeah. I just thought of one, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Is a model. Honey, that's go. exactly right. You've been learning yeah. models your whole life. Every listener has. Yeah. Now, if you think about no matter where you are in the world, no matter what language you do or don't speak, if you come to a traffic intersection and there is a red hexagon. It doesn't even matter if you can read the words yeah. of the country you're in, you know it's a stop sign. We have yeah. been using contextual models and shapes our whole life. What I try and do is I try and help make it easier for the audience to pay attention by putting, it's a way to catalog your intellectual property, right? So everyone yeah. listening to this has key ideas. So could you create some shape around those ideas? I've had yeah. executives hire me to sit in the back of a room and I listen to what everyone's saying and then I draw a contextual model and I say, is it like this? And they're like, yes, that's exactly it. And then <laughs> those executives use that model in all their sales material, their website, their training programs, their client communications. So there are multiple ways you can mm. use a contextual model, but if people can see your idea, they can hear your idea. Yeah. If they can hear your idea, they can share your idea, isn't that? what it's about mm, of course yeah. and i guess you're just leveraging the world that we already know in that yeah because yeah. we all want you know we know the reticular activation system so RAS, yep. what the eye sees the brain remembers and i think drew may have referenced this as well but i always think with RAS, your reticular activation system your brain is constantly looking for evidence to make you right yeah. Now, if yeah. that is true and you can associate what you know about the world and you show people a shape that makes sense to them, then you're helping embed that learning at a completely different level. And so people in your audience who just want the big picture, if you show them a model, they're like, got it. They don't even want to listen to the detail. They got the premise of everything you're trying to teach them. They switch off. Let them go check their email. They're done. They know exactly what you want. Not everyone understands that first up. So if you unpack the model for them in your presentation, for the people who love the detail, they go, oh, I get it. Now, a really sexy model, I think, is one that someone else can go draw in a napkin at the, at the cocktail party. So when I'm designing models for my clients, I often think sometimes the simplest models are the most elegant because they're repeatable. So if, for example, someone can go to the cocktail party after they've seen your presentation, and I know I can say cocktail party on an Australian podcast, can't always do that in America. Um, <laughs> so they can then go draw that on a, on a napkin and say, oh, then Neem was telling us about this, and then they draw it and then they look smart. So imagine if you gave your audience tools to make them look smart when they're out in the world. That's another thing that models can do. That's brilliant because we're always talking about the take-home message. You want people to be able to give one sentence 
of what your talk is about. But if they can draw it, that's even better because that adds so much. Yeah, Ooh. and give them both. Give them the concept yeah. behind what you're yeah. trying to say, one to two sentences, what's your point? But give them a context. Give yep. them a contextual model that they go, huh, I get it, right? Mm. I get it. And when you think to nature, when you think about religion, when you think about the world in which we live, the, the world in which we live is filled with models, the holy trinity like there's so many and it doesn't matter if you're religious or not there's all these ways that we visually represent things in our world and i think that models will help you as a presenter elevate your expertise it makes it repeatable because the others can look smart and share it for you but it also helps switch on parts of our brain that really need that visual representation of what you're trying to tell us I think, I think something you said there, you know, whether it was sales or website or in the presentation, you can use these visual models. And it reminds me of, I think it's the Einstein quote, which is, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. And every time I see or I use one of our visual models or I see somebody else's visual model, that's my first thought is just, you have this so simply, uh, you know, drawn it's such an indicator that they've thought about this long and hard and properly understand the content that's going on here. Yeah. And Thomas, you asked and Kate was asking before about earning the audience's attention. Mm. You're earning their attention by saying, I get this. I have done thousands yeah, of hours right. of work on this. I've researched yeah. this. Many of your listeners probably know the legendary Jay Bayer. If they don't, you should fix that as well. But Jay Bayer <laughs> is a phenomenal consultant, brilliant speaker, one of the best marketing minds that I know. Jay Bayer sat in a session that I was doing many years ago on contextual modeling at the National Speakers Association in America. And I was teaching the room how to do it. He drew a model in the session. He used it in a keynote the next day. The guy is like next level genius. And, but he has some great podcasts as well. He has a fantastic one called Standing Ovation. He has a great one called Convince and Convert. But Jay Bayer is using contextual models. And when he and his partner created Talk Triggers, one of their latest books, the mm. whole thing is a contextual model. I mean, yeah. he's a great example of someone who's used it. Matt Church is a great example. Every book that he publishes, which by the way, he gives away for free on his website now. He believes in gifting his books into the world. Oh. Every one of them has a contextual model. Now that I've highlighted and tuned your RAS into contextual models as a listener, you're going to see <laughs> yeah. them in the next 24 hours. Your boss is going to use it in a presentation. You're going to see it on the television show. Like it's interesting once you tune your RAS to contextual models, how many you see in the wild. We've, um, we've got two business mentors and one of them always says of the other, if he hasn't drawn a triangle while he's been talking to you, check him for a pulse. Cause he's always, always drawing a triangle to explain whatever it is that he's talking about. I love that. And it is when you're looking for it. Right. I do. Um, I, I sometimes work with people virtually. And at the time of recording, there's a whole lot of crazy things happening in the world. So I'm doing a lot more virtual presentations right now. Yeah. And so one thing that I have in my office is a whiteboard. And I do a lot of executive mentoring. I work with very, very senior leaders of major corporations. And I will often pull out my whiteboard and I say, look, it's, I was working with the CEO of a sustainability company last week. And I was like, here's what you're trying to say in your message. And I very quickly drew the model on the board. And I'm pretty sure he had tears in his eyes and he was like I have been trying to say this for years and all of a sudden you did it in a model and so it's just this freakish way my brain has been trained to think so if people start to give me their ideas or tell me about their intellectual property I start to draw models in my brain I literally can't help myself because yeah. it's my system of applying my attention in a way that makes sense to me. And our audiences are doing that constantly. Help me make sense. Tamsin Webster is a genius and she has this incredible process called the red thread process. Yep. And she helps people really be able to take their big idea and share it with the world. She was also the producer of one of the most successful TEDx franchises in America, yeah. but she has this phenomenal way. So she and I are often a double act. She'll help people come up with their idea and I'll help people create a contextual model for it. So mm -hmm. it's a really fun combination. I love working with her. So people might want to follow her work, but Tamsin is really cool at being able to help you identify some of those big ideas and yeah. to be able to communicate it in a way the audience understands. I just love to do it through shapes. <laughs> I've just mm -hmm. noticed there's a gecko on the wall behind us. Hello, little guy. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You don't even need to edit that out. That's adorable. <laughs> all right, let's pivot. We've kind of been going all over there. We've like looking down at our notes here, kind of going all over the shop, but I love it. All right, so let's get into speaking then. 
in your opinion, what separates a good speaker from a great speaker? I think it's two things. It's the quality of your message and the quality of your performance. Do not ever stand on the stage unless you have something to say. Don't you dare do that. It is a privilege to be on a platform of any kind, whether it is at the end of a board table, at your local conference, at your rotary, or your chamber of commerce meeting, or maybe it's in front of a thousand people. Don't you dare stand up unless you have something to say. And so I believe the first thing is it starts with message. You need to have a great message for the world. And whatever your world is, it might be the engineering meeting that you're giving the, the annual update, right? Yeah. But what I want you to consider is you need quality message first. So have something really good to say and preferably a unique perspective on that particular topic. And then the second thing is you better be good. So the quality of your performance, right? And this doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. It doesn't mean you have to be a professional speaker or a dancer or a singer. No, 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 no. It means you have to be the best version of you on that stage. So I believe in investing significantly in time preparing your message and preparing your presentation. I spend thousands of hours researching and customizing all my presentations for my clients, but I spend also a significant amount of time in performance and delivery. And so the performance of your speech, whether it is an update on a webinar, on a teleconference, or whether you are in front of people from your industry, you really need to honor your audience by preparing. Don't you dare wing it. That is the greatest insult to every room of people is if you just wing it. That makes me crazy. Oh, it's yeah, a privilege yeah. to speak, whether you are paid to do it professionally or whether you are doing it as a spokesperson in your company or whether someone called in sick and you have to deliver their PowerPoint presentation. It is a privilege to share a message with a group. So then what's your response when people say, and I'm sure you would have heard this, but Neen, I'm just better on the spot. I'm better if I don't practice. Rubbish. That is such rubbish. <laughs> I know. You think you're better. No one's got the guts to tell you that you are not. Oh, thank so, you. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It makes me so crazy. And yeah. well, professional speakers do it too. And they're like, oh, you know, I know my message. I know this audience before. Don't dishonor that room of people by not putting in the work. Um, when I was learning to run, so I'd never run in my life. Like I never run at school. This was like, I was not the girl who ever did any form of PE, if at all possible. <laughs> I never played a team sport. I was not that girl. And then a, a speaker friend dared me to start running, which was so stupid because I was way too old and don't have a body for running. But I started running and I ran my first full marathon within five months. Now, what? stupid like I've never advocating for this it is a dumb thing to do but the first thing that I did was hired a running coach because I had never run a mile in my life like I had not even run on a treadmill you all don't understand I do not have a body for running but one of the things my coach said which has stuck with me for so many other parts of life I'd say to my coach how do I get faster how do I get better how do I get stronger and he would say it's time on your feet yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's time on your feet. Speaking is no different. Presenting is no different. You've got to have time on your feet. So don't you dare wing it. Don't say you're better if you just like see what happens. No, you need time on your feet. And so what yeah. I believe is important is that you might be funny. You might be good, but watch a stand up. If you really want to know how to get better, you go watch stand ups or yeah. watch this is super, super old. I think it's on YouTube. I'll be honest. Um, Jerry Seinfeld did this old, old, old thing. You may want to link in the show notes called Comedian. And oh, it's, it's him Netflix. after Seinfeld. It's him trying to get four mm. minutes of good material. And the guy works every night. He works in the day. He writes. You'll see him with a napkin on stage yeah. trying a new piece of material out. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was horrified. I was like, I am the worst ever. I need to get more practice. I need to get more time on my feet. And it really challenged me. So if listeners really want to get better, go watch Stand Up because these are the people who get the reps and do it time and time and time again. I don't think you're that good. I genuinely don't think you're that good that you can't get up and practice. Yeah. And so what I want people to consider is you think you're good, but no one has the courage to tell you that you're not. And so you're looking for evidence. So when people ask for feedback from their presentation, what they're really looking for is praise. And yes. so I think that you have to, what would happen? Like, what do you got to lose if you just did a, did a bit of rehearsal? What have you got to lose 
by getting some more reps. Nothing. It's just you'll be better. So in case you don't know, I just got off my little soapbox. But I think (laughs) that people need to honour their audience by doing the work. And we know speaking is a skill. Like I often say, nobody's born a good speaker. You've got to to work towards it, right? And I can't think of any skill where you're not better after you practice. Yeah, and I think, Thomas, the challenge is people think they talk all the time, right? So, you know, my husband, who I adore, is an engineer. He is like my extreme opposite, which is how we've been married 30 years because you can't have a lot of this in one house. It's stupid, right? So... (laughs) Oh, but I hear you. Don't you people, worry. People say to Andy all the time, they say to my Andy, like, oh, have you seen her speak? It's like, I hear her speak all the time. And so <laughs> it's the funniest thing because we think because we speak in conversations that we're good presenters. But there's yeah. so many more responsibilities we have to command an audience's attention, to present a message that is packaged in a way they'll understand, to give them opportunities to make some changes or embed some new learning. We have so many responsibilities when we stand to deliver that five-minute update or that 50-minute keynote. And so I want people who are listening to this to be challenged because like humor, it's a skill that can be learned. You learn to walk, you learn to talk, you can learn to present even more powerfully. And I would love to challenge people to stop winging it and to start investing so they honor their audience. For sure. I actually think stand-up's a really easy case to see the difference between rehearsed and non-rehearsed um I did some stand-up last year and and people would say to me like oh I could never get up and and do that like you're just so naturally funny I was like do you know how long it took to fill five minutes like, oh yeah exactly right yeah <laughs> I, Drew Tarvin Drew Tarvin keeps like threatening me he's gonna take me to some stand-up place in New York and I'm like yeah. oh no like no 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 I'm happy to hit for him to coach me yeah. in how to be like funnier and how to be like and Tammy Evans is another great person where she is phenomenal with words she's so funny on stage audiences adore her and she has that you know people with that quick i'm clicking my fingers that quick wit she has the ability to take words and turn them around some people have that as a natural skill not me uh but i have self-deprecating humor thanks to being an australian and so i have so much (laughs) material i'll never run out so i think that you can you can use your personality. You can use uh, your uniqueness. There are lots of ways you can add value. But watching stand-ups is not necessarily because you just want to be funny. It's because their performance. They put in yes. the reps. Yes. These are the people who, you know, uh, Mike Babiglia is a phenomenal comic humorist funny funny guy in america and i had watched his netflix series and i had the opportunity to see him live in new york and the guy is genius not because just because of his writing the way he stages the way he does blocking on the stage i mean there's so much more that goes into when you you know comedians deliberately sip water at certain times in their presentation while they let the yeah. audience catch up with them if you watch a series of stand-ups on netflix or whatever streaming service you use, you will notice they have very deliberate techniques with their microphone, with their bottle of water, with the stool that's on the stage. Like they're very, very practiced with their audience interaction and all their callbacks. There's so Mm. many techniques they demonstrate that every performer, whether you are an engineer or a CEO, or it doesn't matter. You can learn a lot from that industry. I think they're also the hardest working in the industry. Yeah. Mm. And I think there's, um, it's good to watch them because you see, and you get immediate feedback. Like you, you can see the ones that are not doing well because people are not laughing. Like you've got the most obvious cue of, of people laughing and it's yeah. immediate feedback. I think stand-ups and then teachers. Watch teachers. I mean, I think ah, the yes. toughest audiences yeah. ever are like little people because yeah. <laughs> if you can't like grab their attention and keep it, they're like, okay, where else can we go? What else can we do? Who else can we they're play honest, with? Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And so, you know, test your message. And I often say to executives, if you were talking to my, you know, 11-year-old goddaughter, how would you tell me what this message means so that she would understand it? And I think sometimes we have these complex things we have to communicate. Mm. And I'm not asking anyone to dumb it down. And I'm not asking you to do lowest common denominator. I'm asking you to think about the language you use. So when you share it with an audience, if my little goddaughter is in the room or you have, you know, um, somebody's grandma in the room, you have the ability to have a message that translates across age groups as well. Should Andrew Tarvin ever get you on stage doing stand-up, can you just let me know? 
because I want to be in the audience so that when you walk up in your four foot ten and a half glory, I can just shout out, stand up. <laughs> that is a terrible joke. Oh, but it, it's really funny to me because <laughs> I'm really tall. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, things we can't control. Look, Neen, uh, we ask everybody the same question towards the end of the episode. Is there a particular book or resource that's really impacted on the way that you speak? I'm going to go back to Matt Church again. I sound like I knew it would be Matt Church. Yeah. Of course, yeah. because Brilliant. I think he wrote the book on thought leadership. He yeah. wrote the book on thought leadership. So people can go find that for free on his website. I'm sure you can link in the show notes. Yep. He also was that wrote, Sheets? Uh, Pink Sheets is one of his processes. That's a system that he developed. Mm. Um, But yeah, there is a book on that. You're absolutely right, Kate. But the one that I, um, the one that I always loved was called Sell Your Thoughts, which got renamed as the Thought Leaders Practice. And it was my Bible for many years. It still is to some extent, the way that it guides my thinking and the way that I track revenue, because speaking is Mm -hmm. not just about the performance of speaking. It's about the business of speaking. So if you're a professional speaker listening to this, it doesn't matter how good you are on the platform. If you can't work out how to make a profit, you're not going to last very long. And so I think Matt has the ability to not just help people showcase their thought leadership from a demonstration point of view, but he also challenged me to think about the business of running a thought leadership practice. And that has really helped me to guide my decisions as I've grown up in this business. Yeah, right. I feel like I want to get that book, actually. We often purchase the books that um, people recommend on our podcast, which is why we have this podcast is basically just get book recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what I found fascinating was when Matt decided to stop selling his books and makes them all downloadable PDFs for free on his site. It's mm. just another evidence of how he thinks about the world very differently and very generously is he wants to be able to create more thought leaders in the world. So he's giving them all the resources that they need to be able to do that. But I think if you read anything by Matt Church, anything by Alan Weiss, or who I think is also phenomenal when it comes to consulting, and, and he is really one of the world's best consultants, but he also wrote a couple of books that are helpful for speakers as well. Uh, Grant Bolwin, who you may want to get on the podcast, he recently released a new book at the time of recording called The Successful Speaker. And Grant is a great friend and uh, a lot of speakers look to him, especially when they're starting their journey. He's been a fantastic resource. So he's another book that would be fun for people to pick up. We'll link in the show notes to our episode with Grant Baldwin. Perfect. (laughs) We had him on in um, January. Yeah. He's such a good guy. I mean, it's not just about books. I think it's about podcasts too, because for so many people who are listening, like they love your podcast, you know, Mike Ganino has a phenomenal podcast called the Mike Drop Moment. Jay Bayer has the standing ovation. Michael Port has still the show. Grant Baldwin has a speaker lab. I mean, for anyone who wants to get better, there is an an ordinate amount of resources available to you, including this podcast, because when you have the ability to listen with, if you're an audio learner, to listen to what other people are doing, not because you want to copy it, because you want to think about what system are they using that has grabbed my attention that I might be able to also apply to my own practice. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And then finally, Neen, where can people find you? Well, the good thing for me is there's only one Neen James in the world. So if you Google me, you'll find me. But if you go to neenjames.com, you can download lots of resources for free. You can sign up for our newsletter and we can stay in touch. If you want to see my adventures, follow me on Instagram. That's where I tend to play the most and post stories every day. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neen James, for being on the Presentation Boss podcast. There's been, I feel like we could keep talking for a very long time. Uh, Such great value. And thank you for, for being on the show. It was a privilege. Thank you for all the work that you both do in the world. I love it. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, We rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. We have the power of editing to just let us know. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I'm very much about authenticity. So, like, if we screw it up, I I don't care. Like, I'm okay with that. (laughs)
<laughs> which is fine until I have to say something seven times to get it right. And um, then you'll be fine. Just authenticity be, be screwed. 